0: Welcome to a very special edition of UConn 360. It's the only <laughs> podcast in the world that covers the University of Connecticut from every conceivable angle. I'm your facilitator of sorts. My name is Tom Breen. Joining me are my colleagues, Julie Bartuka. Hello. Ken
1: Best. We're all here, the three musketeers.
0: We're not all here because our student worker, Maxine Philavong is not here today.
2: And some scheduling uh, conflicts.
0: Yes, on our part. Yes, um, our fault, not hers. It's a very special episode because uh, as you're actually, I don't know when you're listening to this, but if you listen to it when you're supposed to, the day it comes out,
2: the minute it comes out,
0: um, we will, if all goes to plan, be in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, having presented our story to a whole conference of people about how to make a good podcast for higher ed.
1: Once upon a time, there
0: was a podcast. I think this is a
2: good (laughs) podcast.
0: Yeah, don't don't, uh, send any snarky tweets at us saying like, how would you know how to make a good (laughs) podcast for higher ed?
2: We're all a lot calmer today than we were last time we recorded. It's morning. We're tired a little bit. It is
0: morning. We haven't had our customary three to four Red Bulls (laughs) during the day. (laughs) Um, Big Red
2: Bull fans over here.
0: So why don't we get right into it? Let's do it. Get into the headlines. What's happening around the world of UConn. Julie, got some big news. We
2: do have big news. You may have heard this before, but if UConn 360 is your source, this is new to you. At his inauguration October 4th, our new president, Thomas Katsoulias, announced a groundbreaking tuition initiative that means that lower-income Connecticut residents who are admitted to UConn as undergraduates starting next fall will get free tuition called the Connecticut Commitment, and it will be an important component of the university's mission to provide high quality, affordable education for in-state students to help keep them in the state to build their careers after they graduate. UConn expects that within its first four years, thousands of students will be eligible for the program, including many first-generation college students, members of underrepresented minority groups and other academically talented young adults who might not have applied to UConn previously because of their family's finances. For a family in Connecticut with a household income of 50000 or below annually, their child will be able to come to UConn tuition-free under the plan. There is more information at financialaid.uconn.edu slash ctcommitment.
0: I think this is great. I'm it's really awesome. excited about it. And uh, the response has been pretty positive overall. This is Connecticut, so some people have complained <laughs> because... In Connecticut, our state motto is the faint sound of whining.
2: I think they'd complain wherever we were, but yes, it Um, is really awesome.
0: Ken, what's uh, what's going on in your world?
1: Well, I realized that we haven't talked really about the historic exhibit about campus activism the late 1960s and early 1970s at the gallery of the Thomas J. Dodd Research Center, which is, of course, part of the UConn Library. The exhibit is Dayglo and Napalm, UConn from 1967 to 1971, and it's based on memories of alumni, faculty, and staff who were on campus at the time. And it was curated by 1971 graduate George Jacoby. The exhibit draws on materials from the Archives and Special Collections Department and includes photography, periodicals, and alternative press collection material, along with personal items and narratives from alumni who attended uh, UConn's main campus during a time of what is described as personal growth against the backdrop of turbulence in the United States at that time. Music of the period, of course, is part of the exhibit, and it's pegged to this year's 50th anniversary of the 1969 Woodstock Music and Art Fair. You can see copies of the daily campus coverage of the National Strike from 1970, which followed the announcement by President Nixon about the expansion of the Vietnam War into Cambodia and other memorabilia from student protests. But for us music lovers, there's albums, including... Arlo Guthrie's Alice's Restaurant, Grateful Dead's American Beauty, Phil Lokes' I Ain't Marching Anymore, and volunteers from Jefferson Airplane. Jacoby also collected personal reflections from alumni and faculty who were on campus during that time and that are part of the exhibit. And there's a link at the Archives and Special Collections blog where you can read some of that material. The exhibit continues through October 25th, and of course, we wrote about it on UConn Today. And I reflected on my time at Woodstock.
2: I have never heard your Woodstock story. I was very surprised that you kept that from us.
0: You should definitely go and read Ken's reminiscence about Woodstock. You know, uh, he actually performed um, <laughs> Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young at the time was called Crosby, Stills, Nash, Young & Best. So yes. check that out. No.
1: <laughs> check that out. That's, a, that's not true. That's a wild exaggeration.
2: <laughs> Don't Google it. it I is, need it to go piece, see though. this exhibit.
0: It's a really good piece that uh, Ken wrote, so check it out. Um, also, kind of tying your two news items together... Uh, You know, people whining about the Connecticut commitment. Well, there's some people getting college for free. Do you know (laughs) one of the big issues at that time uh, that the exhibit covers was tuition?
2: If they only knew. If they
0: only knew. Because up until the early 70s, do you know who got free tuition at UConn? Everybody. Well, every Connecticut resident. Oh. Out-of-staters did not. So
2: we're just going back to our roots. That's right.
1: That was not uncommon back then. No, it was very common. uh, State
0: schools, it was almost universal. Makes a lot of
2: sense. City College
1: of New York.
0: Yep, free for everybody. Yeah. yeah. My dad went to the University of Illinois in the 60s and he didn't pay tuition.
2: That's crazy. Things uh, have become
0: Things have changed. Very crazy. Not always for the better. Nope. Um that's enough editorializing <laughs> from us. Why don't we get into our uh, our features? Let's do it. Julie, what's going on?
2: Um, I have kind of a out-there feature. <laughs> oh I'm segueing now. Oof. Jonathan Trump is an assistant professor of physics, and he's also a professional astronomer who studies black holes. He says he always liked math, and as an undergrad at Penn State, he thought he wanted to study particle physics. But he sat in on an astronomy seminar, and the professor was so enthusiastic and engaging that he was totally hooked. Trump, who is not related to our president. And fellow Yukon astronomer Catherine Whitaker will be among the first scientists to explore the universe on the new James Webb Telescope, which is the largest telescope ever sent into space, set to launch in March 2021. Trump has also had a significant amount of observation time on the Hubble Space Telescope. I started off by asking him what he's learned about black holes from those observations.
3: I'm really interested in which galaxies have black holes and kind of taking a census of black holes. Uh, You know, look around the universe, it's really knocking on the doors of galaxies and saying, is there a black hole here? What is its mass? How much is it eating? How rapidly does it spin? And so I use Hubble actually to monitor black holes. Ultraviolet light doesn't reach the ground here on Earth because we have this ozone layer. Good for your skin, bad for astronomers. And so Hubble is the premier ultraviolet observatory. You know, it sits above the atmosphere. We don't have to worry about the ozone layer blocking ultraviolet light. And so I've actually been monitoring black holes as they accrete in the ultraviolet trying to study the very hot ultraviolet-emitting light that comes from very near the black hole, the inner edge of the accretion disk, trying to understand how they grow and how they affect the galaxies around them.
2: What is the accretion disk? Yeah, sorry, (laughs) the accretion disk around a
3: black hole is just a bunch of stuff that settles into a disk that slowly falls beneath the event horizon, Cool. and then we can't see it anymore. And as it falls inward, it loses energy and it glows very brightly. In fact, these rapidly accreting supermassive black holes are the most luminous, things in the sky.
2: And you had one of the first projects chosen to be on the James Webb. So
3: once James Webb launches, right, it's a $10 billion mission. It will go out beyond the orbit of the moon at the L2 Lagrange point, very far away. We're not going to be sending astronauts out to work on it like we could with Hubble. It's a little terrifying because once it gets out there, it actually has to unfold. So it has a mirror that's six and a half meters. That's just over 20 feet in diameter. It has a sun shield about the size of a tennis court again, that will have to extend and unfold. And if something goes wrong, there's really nothing we can do. So once it gets out there, it unfolds, Uh, it starts taking some calibration images, making sure everything works. Around Christmas 2021, uh, my research group is gonna get a pretty special present and we'll get some of the first science observations with James Webb. I'm especially interested in the first black holes forming in the early universe, right? So James Webb is an infrared observatory. The light of very, very distant galaxies in the universe are redshifted because the universe is expanding that expansion of the universe means that all distant galaxies are moving away from us and moving away from us pretty rapidly such that their light is Doppler shifted to infrared wavelengths. And so James Webb is optimized for the infrared, optimized for really understanding the very first galaxies at cosmic dawn. And I'm really interested in the black holes in those galaxies. I think of it like a chicken or egg problem. You know, do galaxies form with black holes or do the black holes come later, right? You know, black hole, egg, galaxy, chicken, which comes first?
2: (laughs) As I'm trying to listen to what you're saying and understand it, I'm thinking about how I love looking at the stars. My husband's a real nerd about space. I get freaked out by space. I'm someone who is like, it's too big, it's too much, I can't comprehend it. How do you look at these things that are so beyond ordinary comprehension in a way that you can understand as a scientist?
3: Yeah, that's a great question. And you know, students always ask me this. And to be honest, math is a little bit of a crutch for me in that I can write down an equation and it makes sense. The philosophy of astronomy is a little terrifying to me and the vastness of space is overwhelming, it really is. It was Carl Sagan, I think, you know, who referred to Earth as the pale blue dot when the Voyager probe looked back at Earth.
2: I met you when you were a panelist at Yukon Science Salon last year. And another thing that freaks me out when I'm trying to go to sleep at night is the whole life on other planets thing. You talked about some cool theories about this. My
3: point of view as an astronomer, I I would be shocked if there is not life somewhere else in the universe. I would be shocked if we're alone. Because when we as astronomers look out, um, we now know that most stars have planets, right? Our sun, our solar system is not some kind of exception it is probably the rule you know and and every time we look we see planets around other stars. Um, Now it turns out that planets like Earth around other stars with orbits like Earth are tremendously difficult to detect. Our instruments just don't have sufficient sensitivity yet. I think that'll be changing even in the next decade but everywhere we look we see planets around other stars and so probably there are lots of solar systems. In addition life here on Earth developed very quickly. Essentially, as soon as the Earth had cooled enough, and we had, you know, we ceased this period, maybe half a billion years of of heavy bombardment when the Earth's surface was molten, as soon as the Earth cooled enough, life formed. So I think that there is very likely life on other planets. It was Enrico Fermi uh, who was the first person to you know, start a nuclear chain reaction who really posed this question. If life is so easy to develop, if most stars have other planets, then where is it? Why haven't we found that life, right? Why hasn't life developed and colonized the entire galaxy, for example? And so we call this the Fermi paradox. And it's a great question, right? And so there's really just three choices. Choice one is, yes, planets are common, but life is rare and we really are the exception and we're alone in the universe. <laughs> and to me, that's tremendously depressing. Yes. You know, when you think about climate change, when you think about war, when you you know think about all the difficulties we have to continuing life here on Earth. If we fail, then that's it. The grand experiment of the universe creating intelligent life is over, and that's it. It's very Uh, egocentric as well. I agree. Yeah, (laughs) and so I don't really like that one. I don't really like that answer. Option two is life develops all over the place, but maybe they don't explore. That doesn't seem like humans because we explore. Every single time humanity has been able to have some technological innovation to explore the oceans, you know, to explore space, we have done so. And it's hard to imagine intelligent life not doing that. There's also a possibility in this vein that maybe life does exist, but then it constantly extincts itself.
2: That's the part that really freaked me out. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And we have cycles of
3: intelligent life popping up all over the place, but then ending before they can actually colonize the galaxy, really explore the stars. Option three is that there is intelligent life and they have chosen not to reveal themselves to us. If you have an idea that we live in a simulation, that fits this option. Or maybe there's some benevolent species that has colonized space, but they have determined that we are not yet worthy. No matter how you think about this, I think it's very likely that life develops. It's hard to know if that life turns into intelligent life. But given that there are hundreds of billions of stars in our galaxy and hundreds of billions of galaxies across the universe, I think the odds are pretty good there's life out there. And so then trying to figure out, well, where is it? It's a challenging problem.
2: Another thing I learned at that event was that you named your son after Giordano Bruno.
3: Yeah, his his middle name, Bruno. Okay, Bruno.
2: So um, this guy was a Renaissance monk. He was a scientist. He believed not... Popular opinion at the time that the Earth revolved around the sun, not the other way around, and um, he was burned at the stake because of this. So, why did you want to honor this man with your son? <laughs> so,
3: to be fair, I have not told my son the story yet. You know, we'll, we'll <laughs> yeah, wait. He's gonna be he's, a little older, probably. Yeah, for that he's, he's one. just five, so so we'll wait a little bit. Um, no, so he he to me is a really fascinating philosopher scientist. I, I, you know, sometimes ask my students, right, would you be willing to give your life for the advancement of science? And I don't think I would. I don't think I would. But Giordano Bruno did. and, And many other philosophers and scientists did at that time. Bruno, among others, posited the now known to be correct idea that the Earth is not the center of the universe, right? Humans are not at this central place in the universe, but instead, we revolve around the sun. And Bruno even went further and said there are probably multitudes of worlds, of other worlds, which, again, we now know to be correct. Bruno was unpopular for a lot of other philosophical reasons challenging the, the dominant Catholic Church at the time. I really admire his conviction. When Giordano Bruno was convicted of his crimes against the Catholic Church, they burned him at the stake, burned him alive uh, in Rome. Uh, there's a statue of him still in one of the plazas in Rome. They put an iron mask on him because they were so worried his words would incite the crowd. He was such an eloquent speaker. And and this kind of terror of new ideas is kind of a scary thing to me. And I feel fortunate to be a scientist in a very different time when I can express my ideas freely and I don't have to worry about some dominant hierarchy, you know, <laughs> shutting down my, my thoughts and my science just because they, they conflict.
2: So that's kind of interesting. My last question, which I almost don't want to ask you because I'm sure, sure you're very sick of being asked about your name. <laughs> but you know, you can speak freely about your science, but in this kind of administration with this man who shares your name, science is sometimes seen as under attack. What's that been like for you?
3: You know, I should have clarified my name, of course, is Professor John Trump, no relation. I'm happy to make America great again with astronomy, you know, (laughs) make, make astronomy great again with black holes. But to be honest, I've been saying Trump, no relation since I was a kid. I have to say my brother actually works in climate change. He's a physical chemist and he's interested in small molecule trapping which means co2 sequestration uh, to try and reduce co2 levels and i am fortunate that i'm an astronomer and not a climate scientist because i i have to say the politics are much much worse for many other scientific disciplines mm-hmm. especially climate science or gender studies or things like this um, so astronomy we're reasonably safe um, because everybody likes space The Hubble Space Telescope is one of the most popular investments that the US has ever made in science. It's $10 billion, and other scientific disciplines don't get that kind of investment. You know, there's some nationalism that goes with exploring space. Americans were quite proud to be the first to set Mm -hmm. foot on the moon. I know a number of astronomy PhD graduates who have since gone on to positions in public policy, right, or in public engagement. And they tell me that they are constantly meeting both. Democratic and Republican lawmakers, and they say that everybody's really engaged and excited about black holes and the search for life and trying to understand you know, how we came to be where we are within this vast universe. And so we astronomers are, are fortunate, right? Everybody likes space, everybody recognizes for lots of different reasons we should explore our universe. There are other scientific disciplines who have it much harder. But I I do feel fortunate that, you know, whoever's listening to this, pay your taxes. (laughs) Some of that goes to science. It supports things like Hubble. It supports things like James Webb.
2: Professor Trump made a point to share how proud he was of two UConn physics graduate students who had separate proposals accepted for time on the Hubble telescope this year, meaning UConn students controlled a week of Hubble activity in 2019. You should be able to hear my full conversation with Professor Trump on a future airing of the WHUS version of the podcast.
0: I found that fascinating. I love uh, that kind of cosmology and, you know, study of astronomy, worlds beyond our world.
2: It's so cool. As I said, it freaked me out a lot, but he was a really good person to talk to about it.
1: Well, we will hear a little bit more about black holes and other things related to artificial intelligence in the future when uh, we talk to Professor Susan Schneider when she gets back from her road trip. And uh, that will be sometime next month, and that will be another future thing to look forward to.
2: Part two.
0: Part uh, So Julie's piece was an interview with Professor Trump. I understand there's another person named Trump who's been making some headlines. (laughs) And Ken, you talked to one of our well-known faculty experts about a situation involving this other Trump. Why don't you tell us about it?
1: Uh, Yes, I think everybody is probably aware of the uh, impeachment inquiry going on at the United States House of Representatives focused on President Trump's conversations with the Ukraine government. Uh, and what all that means and what it is trying to do, that sort of thing. Professor David Ayaloff specializes in constitutional law, judicial politics, and executive branch politics and is the head of the Department of Political Science at UConn. And we've had him on previously talking about Supreme Court issues but in 2012 he published a book titled prosecution among friends presidents attorneys general and executive branch wrongdoing and that book examines the cases of executive branch corruption real or alleged that occurred over the course of the four decades just past beginning with the nixon administration and watergate extending up through the second bush administration professor Alof says he was primarily focused on the position of u.s attorney general who leads the department of justice and his or her relationship with the president and the independence of the Department of Justice when pursuing executive branch corruption. So we had a
4: very interesting conversation. When I wrote that book, I was focused uh, quite a bit on the nature of the position of Attorney General and the degree to which our political system is heavily dependent upon that individual having some degree of independence from the President of the United States. That is something that not all presidents have subscribed to, Obviously, John F. Kennedy had his brother as an attorney general. Even Barack Obama, to some extent, Eric Holder was a basketball-playing buddy, and somebody had worked on his campaign. Uh, There was a level of independence, but not like he was an objective outsider. So there are these models, and our system... And we've seen that just in the last few weeks with how the whistleblower rules work. Our system depends on the attorney general to have some degree of independence. And when it isn't there, it can cause a lot of problems and almost force us into an impeachment uh, road, which is kind of what's happening right now. Impeachment is the
1: constitutional remedy for looking at issues that may be inappropriate uh, in the judgment of Congress on behalf of the president. That is a wide range statement, high crimes and misdemeanors. Misdemeanors are technically minor offenses. High crime seems to be the focus then, but that's not never really been defined.
4: Yeah, it isn't defined because it is ultimately a political sanction. A court would never step in and say, for example, uh, this president was removed on the basis of an impeachment that was not a high crime and misdemeanor. They might look at procedures under the Constitution, but they would never judge the substance itself. And so really the definition of high crime and misdemeanor is whatever gets 218 votes in the House of Representatives and whatever gets 67 votes in the Senate, that is a high crime and misdemeanor. And that, I think, is explicit in the Constitution. It is a political remedy. Uh, Once a president is removed, which has never happened by this process, but if a president ever was removed, uh, then the legal system might take over. But this is a political remedy for a political system.
1: Your book in 2012 really looked at the position of the attorney general and the impact of the Department of Justice in investigating itself in some cases and those within the executive branch. You went into great detail on when a special prosecutor needed to be appointed. We've had a special prosecutor of sorts with the Mueller investigation previously. You set down certain conditions when you think that should be present. Give us a short short version of when you think that's necessary, and will there be anything further do you think?
4: You need to recall that between 1978 and around 2000, 2001, we had for most of that period with a small gap uh, an independent counsel law that actually allowed for the appointment of a prosecutor who was not subject to control by the attorney general or the president of the United States. Special prosecutors like Robert Mueller uh, under the current system are subject to the attorney general. It's only politics, again, that serves as the check. So I looked at the politics of independent counsels and special prosecutors, and it was clear to me that sometimes it's not appropriate to go with that kind of extreme route. You're thinking about things like whether during an election season it makes sense to have a special prosecutor or independent counsel running around when it's not the Justice Department, can the Justice Department do a pretty good job uh, looking into, let's say, whether the HUD secretary has violated the law? And I think my answer was yes, because to some extent, it's in the president and the Justice Department's best interest to have a thorough investigation.
1: And the HUD secretary being Henry Cisneros uh, in the Bill Clinton administration. Exactly. That you very nice. And so, you
4: know, from that perspective, what I asked for is is a rational calculation of when you really do need to go outside the normal system, because the normal system works well a lot of the time. But I, I think the current situation we're in and the calculation of Nancy Pelosi and the House Democrats, especially those uh, moderates who had been opposing impeachment and then turned uh, another way just last week, is that this is classically a situation where the president and the Justice Department are are just too biased, have too much at stake to really allow this process to you know to to, to happen?
1: One of the other points uh, of issue that you raised in the book was emphasizing the past rather than the present, and I read in one of the accounts an effort to reopen the Hillary Clinton email situation from the previous election. So once again, whatever crystal ball you were looking through at the time, you were thinking
4: of that exact situation. Well, prosecution is really the most political of all decisions. If you think about it, you have a certain number of resources, you can't prosecute everybody. You can't put resources into every murder investigation, every assault investigation. You have to plea bargain, you have to divide up resources. That's a political calculation there too. And clearly there's a calculation on the part of the White House that uh, looking into, for example, Hillary Clinton emails or uh, Joseph Biden's son, is to their benefit politically. I I don't think anybody doubts that, and I'm not even sure President Trump would disagree. The question then is how do you do it? What process you go about? And that's what this current impeachment inquiry is kind of looking at. And they don't need to prove a quid pro quo per se. Is it simply wrong or is it simply unethical to have the president ask a foreign leader to help him out in dealing with a political opponent? I mean, it's a fundamental question.
1: We did not have the 24-7 social media that we exist in today. The disinformation, which was highlighting a technique that the Nixon administration used in the Watergate case, seems to be clouding everything even further.
4: Politics aside, uh, how do you see things maybe playing out? I mean, it is impossible to say... I do think that the gamble on the part of the White House is that this will fall into line with so many other Quote unquote mini scandals and issues and problems, whether it had to do with Mueller, whether it had to do with things the president said that he shouldn't have said, and that ultimately it will all fit into the big world of white noise. And on election day in 2020, people will vote their pocketbook, people will vote uh, their views on immigration and not think about this. Uh, that's the gamble. But it is a big gamble because when we think about the other impeachment inquiries, we didn't have. A president of the United States with a decent chance of winning another election. Andrew Johnson really would be dead on arrival as a Republican or Democratic candidate in 1868. And of course, it happened with Richard Nixon, the Watergate. During his second term, there was no election coming up. Same with Bill Clinton. So, what's so unusual about the current situation is this is playing out with a looming 2020 election. And we are in uncharted territory, Ken. The Hearst papers in Connecticut
1: have asked for the resignation of the president, which we know is not going to happen. But the Times laid out their argument, recalling much of the history that we just discussed about the Alexander Hamilton reference in the federal papers about abuse or violation of some public trust and now the potential impact on the 2020 election that you just talked about. The information that has been coming out comments that have been made, most everyone would agree, let the voters make the decision. But there's going to be some sinking in of all these comments on the on the electorate. What risk do you think we have now of the election
4: going haywire? Elections themselves are a fragile thing. I think it's moments like this we look back and and should appreciate just how many elections could have, found themselves in some kind of peril when Abraham Lincoln running for reelection in the middle of a civil war, with members of the army uh, voting. I mean, the, these are things that happen that we take for granted because uh, we got through them. Uh, this is this is again, uncharted territory, the extent to which uh, w- what if President Trump, refuse to leave the White House, even if he lost? What if there's the same kind of confusion that happened in 2000 about who won? We think that uh, regardless, you wouldn't expect that the president, the tie doesn't go to the runner. Uh, You wouldn't expect the president just gets to stay because he's there anyway. And yet, uh, who would remove him? Uh, These are really mysteries. they Put a lot of constitutional scholars uh, keep them up at night writing wonderfully interesting columns and projections. But we've got to see it before we even know. Ultimately, it's going to be the act of selfless people, uh, people willing to sacrifice their own political standing to kind of step up and figure out a way out of it. That's the way it's happened in the past. Who knows what'll happen in 2020?
1: Well, of course, since I recorded that interview last week, which which wasn't that long ago, things are moving at rapid pace right now. So who knows what's going to happen by the time you hear this, but it's it's not going to go away.
2: It's nice to have that context from one of our own professors.
0: Yeah. If you're listening to this and things have changed completely dramatically since the interview, just pretend that it was uh, Ken's History Corner. and. We're- <laughs> Just talking about... Sure.
1: It's a Roseanne Rosanna Dana
0: moment. Never mind.
2: (laughs) Professor Yaloff is, uh, I believe, a distant cousin of my good friend Ashley Yaloff, who is a UConn alum. Wow. Fun fact.
0: Fun fact. Um, That'll be on the quiz, folks. Yep. So turning to history, uh, I'm kind of disappointed that Maxine isn't here for a variety of reasons. I like Maxine a lot. She adds a lot to um, our enterprise here. But I also wanted to ask her if she remembered this incident because... This is a Tom's History Corner that takes place all the way back in
2: 2016.
0: Ooh, recent history. I believe she was a first-year student here. Yes. Specifically, October 2016, since we are now in the spooky month of October, I wanted to revisit what was for me both a professional (laughs) highlight and a professional low point. (laughs) I'm talking, of course, about the great clown hunt of UConn, uh, which took place the night of October 3rd into the morning of October 4th.
2: It's amazing how fast things happened that this had been almost completely blotted from my memory until you reminded me
0: this has really been forgotten overall when i was looking through sources i wanted to find some like looking back two years after the clown hunt stuff every article i could find was written in october 2016
2: yeah nobody remembers
0: you may remember or may not (laughs) that in october 2016 there was a rash of clown sightings around our great nation
2: was this when it came out or was it before that the movie
0: i think it was after yeah. i could be wrong about that i
2: feel like it was related to that right
0: i don't know there were clown sightings around the world but they mm. were concentrated here in america because we are afraid of clowns apparently <laughs> some uh, high schools were locked down classes were canceled in some places some people got arrested some people thought it was a good idea after clown sightings were reported to dress like clowns and walk around <laughs> which is not a good idea um, and the news was full of clown panic what can only be called clown <laughs> panic So on the night of October 3rd, uh, at the University of Connecticut, also at Quinnipiac, uh, University of Massachusetts, and Penn State, there were reports on social media that people in clown costumes had been seen on these various campuses. Uh, there were rumors circulating at Yukon on Facebook, Twitter, and Snapchat that uh, people in clown costumes had been spotted in the cemetery on North Eagleville Road, which is where the Stores brothers are buried, along with many, many people from Yukon history.
2: As you tell this with such a flat affect, yeah. it doesn't really make any sense that just a person in a clown costume Would is cause for yeah. panic alone. Yeah,
0: well, we'll get to that. Um, <laughs> there were also reports on verified social media reports that people in clown costumes had been spotted in the towers. Storms, and that someone in a clown costume had been arrested and that the university was locked down. None of these were true. Um, however, it was a, a time of ferment and uh, panic, and so hundreds of students armed with baseball bats, oh, good. hockey sticks, golf clubs, and according to an Associated Press report, shovels. Jeez. I don't know why you'd have a shovel Guys. In, in your residence.
2: Guys, You've
1: never seen a horror
0: movie, have you? I guess. So they came to the cemetery on North Eagleville Road, again, a historic cemetery where lots of Yukon people are buried. It's a beautiful cemetery, beautiful views of campus from the top of the hill. Uh, It was around 11 p.m., and they were roaming around the cemetery looking for people in clown costumes. A detachment of them ran off towards towers after a report that- How
2: many students were part of this throng?
0: Hundreds. Hundreds of students. And
1: this might be a good time to note that we are very close to that location.
0: (laughs) We are very close to the cemetery. And so uh, some UConn police officers showed up, as you would expect, and told people, there are no clowns. Please go back to your dorms.
2: If there were clowns, it's not your responsibility to beat them
0: with shovels. It's also not illegal to dress like a clown. Right. So it took about two hours to disperse the clown hunters. Um, So by around one in the morning, they all went back to their dorms, not having found any clowns.
2: It's a very dark, dark point in our history, I believe.
0: Uh, The Daily Campus the next morning quoted... uh, a handsome young university communications spokesperson, Tom Breen, who said students, faculty, staff, and visitors should use their good judgment and common sense when it comes to unverified rumors circulating on social media, particularly something getting as much national attention as the clown reports. You
1: quoted yourself on your story.
0: Yeah, it is Tom, it's really Tom's history corner. Uh, also, I will not name the publication that misquoted me as comparing it to a scene from a Frankenstein movie. Well, that's
1: where the shovels come in. Mm-hmm. Pitchforks and shovels.
0: So, my memory of this conversation is different from what was presented in the publication. Let's just say that. So, anyway, there were you, no clowns. So, you did
2: not compare it to Frankenstein?
0: The reporter compared it to a Frankenstein movie. Ah. And I said, uh huh. And then. <laughs>
2: hey, that's enough.
0: Yeah. The thing that fascinates me about the clown story is that it just it vanished. Like, as soon as, I don't know, a couple weeks had passed, people talked about it in October, but by November. After the election, no one talked about the clowns anymore.
2: Because it's ridiculous. Clown
0: fever had broken.
2: Thank God.
1: Except the Joker film has just come out, so let's not
2: even go there.
0: It's true, he, he's a clown who clowns haunt our collective psyche. Apparently, <sighs> I want to say yeah. I've, I've never been afraid of clowns. Have you?
2: The only time... I'm not afraid of clowns in general. The only time I was afraid of a clown was at Lake Compounds during the uh, haunted graveyard situation. I was getting food, and this clown, silent clown, decided to stalk me around the food court. So yes, I was very afraid at that time.
0: That's kind of alarming. Yeah. So it's been my mission ever since then to remind people every October of this stupid thing that happened. And it's a good illustration of... Um, kind of a social panic,
2: a little bit of a group think. Yeah,
0: mass hysteria problem, kind of yeah. stuff. Well, well good so, times. So, so
2: if you really want to get to Tom's, uh, get under Tom's skin, revive the clown fear. Oh man, here at UConn, he's no longer the spokesperson. though. So.
0: No, no, I won't be talking to the press about clowns. No, that was also the same year that I denied the existence of ghosts at the depot campus <laughs> in an Associated Press story.
2: UConn's <laughs> had a banner Halloween it year. An, it was
0: an incredible year. Um, all right, so that's that's it for this. Fortnite, yeah good episode everybody
1: mm-hmm.
0: wish us well in milwaukee actually if you're hearing this uh we've finished our presentation so either we've succeeded or we've been humiliated in front of our peers
1: <laughs> but either way tom will be at the bobblehead museum and in, in this fonzie statue That's yes can't absolute, wait to see
2: 100% the 100 correct so excited eating lots of brats
0: you mm. can find us on twitter at yukon podcast and uh you can also find a series of our best stories on yukon today today.yukon.edu
2: I am at Julie Bartuka, and I want to tell everybody that Healthjournal.ukon.edu is live with the latest issue, which has a fantastic story about UConn Health's breast cancer program, among others.
0: It is Breast Cancer Awareness Month.
2: It is. We planned that.
1: Ken? Today.ukon.edu is where I am most of the time. And, of course, on Fridays at 11 o'clock, the extra special editions of the UConn 360 podcast on WHUS 91.7 UConn Sound Alternative.
0: Go and read Ken's Woodstock piece on UConn Today. Thanks. Sounds good.